You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Hello, friend, and welcome to episode number 107 of the Business for Good podcast. I appreciate those of you who let me know that you noticed the new music for the show's opening and closing that we switched to in the last episode. It seemed like it was time for a bit of a refresh, so I hope you enjoy the new, more upbeat and positive music that we are now using. And speaking of the last episode, I don't know if I got more comments about the interview with Matrix FT CEO Taryn Wolf, which listeners seem to really enjoy, or from my opening commentary that my wife Tony and I were going on our four-year delayed honeymoon. Well, either way, I'm grateful that you listen. And for those of you wondering, yes, we had a really wonderful time. I've posted on Twitter a video of the humpback whales who swam up to us in the Pacific Ocean. So if you want to see some truly surreal footage, go check it out. So speaking of animals, this episode is about them. More accurately, it is about replacing our use of them in laboratories. So President Biden recently signed into law the FDA Modernization Act 2.0. It's new legislation that ends the FDA's mandate that all drugs be tested on animals prior to human clinical trials. The new law does not prohibit animal testing, but it does give companies the choice of whether to conduct animal experiments or not. So it could theoretically lead to many fewer animals being used as test subjects. If we don't use animals, though, as our test tubes prior to human clinical trials, what should we use? Emulate claims that it has the answer. The organ-on-a-chip company's CEO, Jim Corbett, testified before Congress in favor of this new legislation that Biden just signed and says that his company's products deliver much more reliable data than does animal experimentation. And why shouldn't it? We all know that rats, the most popular animal on whom to experiment, have pretty different biologies than humans. For example, people with pet rats are regularly warned not to give their rats onions since it can sicken them. We all know that dogs are apparently not supposed to eat chocolate, yet humans do just fine eating foods like onions and chocolate that are apparently toxic to rats and dogs respectively. So what if we could test on actual human cells that have been placed on chips which mimic the functions of a human body? In this episode, Jim discusses Emulate's technology. It's promised to slash the number of animals used for testing while delivering safe drugs to market more quickly, who opposes their efforts, and where this is all leading us. Emulate so far has raised a whopping quarter of a billion dollars from venture capital investment. So someone believes that these folks are on to something big. Time will tell. And for now, their CEO will tell you the Emulate story. Jim, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Paul, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. It is my pleasure to be chatting. Congratulations. I, I know that you testified before Congress for a bill that would hopefully reduce the number of animals who are used in testing. And lo and behold, that bill got passed. Amazingly, something happened in D.C. and legislation got passed. To, to my knowledge, this is like the first time there's been any meaningful legislation relating to animals used in labs since like the 1960s or so. Is that is that accurate or do you know something that I don't? It actually goes takes back further than that. The FDA Modernization Act, which just passed, it really hasn't been amended relative to the use of animals and bringing therapeutics to markets since 1938. Wow, wow. So uh, it's been decades and decades to say the least. But yes, it was lovely to see that bill come through. It was unanimously passed by the Senate. 
then went through the House, and then President Biden signed it just the last week of um, December in 2022. Yeah, well, congratulations. So the 1938 law that you're referring to essentially requires any drugs to be used for humans to be tested on animals first. I I was referring to the 1966 Animal Welfare Act, which set standards for some animals used in labs about how they can be treated. But there have been efforts to amend that. And I think there have been some slight modifications, but I don't think any substantive modifications since then. But either way, it's been a whole heck of a long time since anything happened in Congress that was good for animals in labs. So I I know that you were not the only one in favor of this bill, Jim, but how'd you do it? I mean, how how, how did this come to pass that this actually happened? Yeah, there was, to your point, there was a lot of organizations involved in this, the Center for Humane Economy, the Center for Contemporary Sciences, many groups that have a passion about the well-being of animals and the potential to try to reduce the amount of animals utilized in research. So their efforts align with our objectives also, which is we believe we can deliver a technology that will allow researchers alternatives to produce their science and move their programs along and assess those technical questions they need outside of an animal model. And so it was a natural partnership to work with these organizations that have a similar mission to to reduce the unnecessary animals that are used in research. So let's talk about what the bill does, or rather what the law does and doesn't do. Because as you mentioned, since 1938, drugs were required to be tested on animals. This doesn't prohibit any animal testing, but it does suggest that you don't have to do it. So what do you think will happen? Do you think that companies just due to inertia will continue testing on animals? Or do you think that they now will be freed from the shackles of animal testing and say, ah, okay, great. Now we're going to use alternatives. Yeah, I I think it's going to be a slow process, but it has been, I would suggest, an overhang on the industry where the only way you could get through into a clinical trial was utilizing animal models as part of that submission. And now with this option to be open, I think you'll start to see creative companies like ourselves, and you see creative biotech companies and pharma companies start to use these different technologies that are out there and submitting that in lieu of potential animal data. And more than likely, you'll start to see a reduction at first. You won't see a complete elimination. For instance, it's quite common for you to get into a phase one clinical trial, which is the safety component of it, where you have to test on two different species. If it's a small molecule, it's typically a rodent model and, unfortunately, a dog model. I think over time what you'll be able to see is maybe we can eliminate one of those species at first to see how does something like an organ on chip work in addition to the animal model, and that might be that first step in starting to reduce the number of animals in the medical testing pathway. Okay, great. Well, we're going to talk all about organ on chip and what it is in just a few minutes, Jim. But I I do want to ask you just first about the efficacy of animal testing in general, because in your testimony in 2022 before Congress, I'm quoting you, you say that a growing body of evidence suggests that animal models are lacking in both sensitivity and specificity when it comes to predicting drug toxicity in humans. So let me just ask you, like, you know, obviously you think that the organs on a chip that Emulate is making are are, are great to use. Mm -hmm. Is animal testing just inherently flawed in your mind? Like uh, set aside the ethics of it. Like, so we can talk about whether we should be, you know, forcing these animals to endure these experiments anyway, but does it work? Like you're suggesting that they're really not that reliable of a model. So do you think that it, it works in these toxicity tests or any tests at all that are modeling for human medicine? Yeah. And so let me uh, kind of give you the bigger picture on, on, on this. And 
there's, it's clear there's species differentiations. Animals are not humans, and it's been known for some time. And if you look at the clinical trial of failure rates, I'll give you, for instance, for every, for every 10 drugs that go into a clinical trial, nine of them will fail. And of those that fail, the four fail for two specific reasons. Number one, they won't hit their efficacy endpoint, meaning it didn't accomplish what it was looking to do in, in, in curing that patient or treating that tumor or whatever it might be. Or about 40% of them also fail for toxicity reasons. And even though they've gone through animal testing, they still cause toxic events in humans in clinical trials. But it's the only framework the research community has had and the flaws are quite known. <laughs> it's well understood, but it is the only framework that they've had. And so now you need to be able to deliver alternative methods for these researchers to prove to A, the regulators and themselves that these drugs can be utilized appropriately and you can validate both the safety and the efficacy with them outside of the animal environment. So, you know, it's quite known the flaws and limitations of animals and it all comes down to species differentiation. Right. So what I'm hearing you saying, and tell me if I'm picking up what you're putting down here, Jim, is that basically non-humans have different biologies than humans do. And so it's one thing that may be toxic to, to us, may not be toxic to them. And so you could end up having a, a particular drug pass with flying colors if you're testing it on rats, but then you put it in a human and it, it may actually be toxic. And so I, I, I see you, you're nodding in agreement here. So let me just ask you, like, you know, how do we get drugs at all then? I mean, if if that rate is so high, you're talking about 90%, like, you know, surely we must be missing a lot of things then that get screened out because they never make it to human trials. You're absolutely right. And that's the unknown. We don't know how many we don't get to trial because of the elimination of those compounds potentially in either the preclinical stage or in the clinical stage because the animal models aren't replicating what happens in the humans. Right. So that is the unknown for sure. And to your point, it, it is, it's, not, it's not sustainable. I mean, the cost to develop a drug today ranges anywhere from $2 billion to $3.2 billion. It takes anywhere from 9 to 14 years. And again, the failure rate is incredibly high. It's not sustainable. And with all the new evolutions we've had in medicine, whether it's cell therapy, gene therapy, and so forth, we need to find a way to put only the best candidates into that clinical trial process so we can reduce the number of failures, we can reduce the cost, and we can get the medicines to the market in a more timely, efficient way. Got it. So, you know, you, you mentioned two species of animals who are commonly tested on both rats and dogs. You know, as somebody who has dog, who has a dog and has had many dogs, like I can't tell you how many times I have been told, don't give them chocolate, right? Don't give them chocolate. It's toxic to dogs. And that leads me to think, well, good thing they didn't test chocolate on dogs before humans, because otherwise we wouldn't have chocolate, right? They'd say, oh, it's not safe because it's, it's it sickens them. For what it's worth, you know, I've seen plenty of dogs eat chocolate and they didn't get sick. So I don't know what, I don't know what the deal is with this. Don't go do this at home, friends, but you know, there must be some upper limit, you know, of that they can, that they can take at least. But then I know, I know that rats also, like rats can't eat, um, apparently, from what I understand, I don't know this firsthand, but what I've read is that onions in certain quantities are really bad for rats and that if you feed rat if you have pet rats and you feed them onions they can get really sick and if they eat too many onions they'll die well you know i love onions and i mean i could eat you know a whole onion a day and feel just fine in fact i think i feel pretty feel pretty good so i'm glad they never tested onions on rats because then we wouldn't be eating onions right and it just makes me wonder like you know it, it's one thing to talk about the animal welfare implications which i think are gravely serious but then the question is like why do this at all 
Like, like, why are we doing this at all? And I guess then that leads to a company like Emulate. So what can you all do to create tests that actually do mimic what happens inside of the human body? Like, what are the products that Emulate makes that are realistic alternatives and not only alternatives, but preferred alternatives to feeding rats and dogs substances that just find out if they get sick or not? Yeah. And that, that really was the basis for the founding of Emulate. Maybe I'll start, start where it did. Actually, the technology came out of Don Ingber's lab at Harvard at the Lease Institute. The original funding came from DARPA. And DARPA likes to fund what they call big challenges. And everyone understands the challenge of developing drugs. And so Don and team in the early days said, you know, there has to be a better way. And that led them to the creation of an organ on chip. Now, for the listeners, the organ chip imagines the size of like a computer thumb drive, but it is made of a polymer, and there's two microfluidic channels in there. And you can imagine these channels, we we can mimic certain things that go on in the body. We can mimic like blood flow going through. We can put nutrients through those. And what we do is we create organ models that are specific for, that are required for different testing. So we create a liver model where we put four different cell types onto that liver model. Then again, we can flow nutrients through, we can test compounds, potential chemicals or drugs to see does it cause a a drug-induced liver effect or or some other effect on that model. We've got a brain model where we have six different cell types in our brain model. We have an intestine model, we have a kidney model and so forth. So the idea early on was how do we look at the different organs within the body recapitulate what happens in that body by using primary human cells or IPS-derived cells. And so we can test basically in vitro, but on, on human cells. And the key here was when you look at the organ chip, cells, you know, they've had cell capability for a long time where you put it in a Petri dish and you try to test it. But that's not what happened inside your human body. Your lungs are breathing, your liver, your, your intestine is having peristalsis. So the chip itself allows us to actually mechanically put forces onto it. So it recapitulate what's happening in the human body. Therefore, the predictability of what we get out of a chip compared to traditional cell culture models or whatever has been there before is, is much more enhanced. Hmm. And we've got several publications to show that. Interesting. Because we are mimicking. So you basically have intestine on a chip and kidney on a chip and brain on a chip and so on. That's what you're suggesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I I have wondered a lot about this because, you know, I'm I'm rooting hard for you all to succeed because I think the world would be a better place. I do wonder, though, like if you put, you know, you write like take take the devil's advocate argument. You put this drug into an animal, you get the in vivo experience and you can see what happens to all of these every single part. Right. The organ, all the intestines, the kidneys and liver and brain and everything. Whereas in your case, you're basically isolating each one of these, but you're making it human, not animal. So you're doing like an in vitro rather than an in vivo model. And you're saying that it actually does a really good job of mimicking it better than what would happen in vivo in an animal. Is that right? Yeah, I'm saying that we can get a good picture of that organ model because we are using human cells and creating what's what's more like the the organ itself within the body as opposed yeah. to a difference. And so are, 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 are these... Are these cells that came out of a human or are they grown outside of a human? Like, are there some donors who are, you know, you're giving up parts of their intestines for this here? 
Yeah, predominantly we use, it depends on the organ model, but our liver model is all primary human cells. So yes, a donor would, would do those, would donate those cells. We would cryopreserve those cells and mm-hmm. then use them as part of the process. Interesting. In our brain model, we use both primary cells and we use iPS-derived brain cells, depending on which type of cell we're using. So we use a combination. In our intestine model, we actually use what's called primary cells that have then transformed into organoids. Hmm. And then we put the organoids on our chips. So the biologist builds the model using whatever they can to most, you know, to recreate how that organ works inside the human body. Very cool. So when you say it's coming from human donors, are these living donors or cadavers? These are typically sourced from, I should, you know, it depends. We get them through research universities that collect these cells. And I, I don't know specifically the majority, whether they're human, living or cadavers. I don't okay. know the answer. Because I bet there's a lot of people listening who would say, hey, you know, if you're taking, you know, donations, you know, maybe I'll be willing to give up some of my skin cells or I don't know about my brain cells, but I might give up some cells to aid in this cause here. <laughs> so, so if you find out, email me and we'll include it in the show notes of if, if, if there is a way to donate to organ on a chip, because I bet there's a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who would be, if you can do this from living human donors, who would be quite pleased to make this happen. So, yeah. you know, your, your company has existed for 10 years. I know you've not been there the whole time that you became CEO just a, a couple years ago, Jim, but you all have raised like a quarter billion dollars from investors. So obviously you've persuaded some deep pocketed folks that there's real potential and you're already commercialized, right? Like this isn't a futuristic thing. What I read is that 10 of the top 25 pharmaceutical companies are currently today using Emulate's organ on a chip. So would you say like already the company is achieving that mission of displacing some animal use and research? We look at we certainly are commercialized. We have what we call our instrumentation, which runs the organ chips, placed in actually twenty one of the top twenty one pharma around the globe. From you know a brand name perspective, and about how much they spend on R and D, but it's still early days. So there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of interest for researchers, but candidly, it's very new technology, and so they're experimenting with it. They're 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 trying to see how this model can work into their workflow. They're comparing it to animal models. They're comparing it to other in vitro models, trying to see what is the output of this? How does this help me as a researcher make a better decision? So we're, I would say we're in early innings of where this technology can do, but there is a lot of excitement. So how much do you need? Like if 10 years and a quarter billion dollars is still qualified as the early innings, like how much support from the investor class do you think Emulate will need, let alone your competitors, before this becomes a truly widely commercially used and accepted preference to animal testing? Yeah, you know, I I don't know if I can put a number on that. What I can tell you, though, is the FDA Modernization Act, I think, is a milestone. And that really is a triggering point because I think the people who are sitting on the sidelines, you know, who, who, who maybe weren't as aggressive with innovative technology, now are going to have to come in and start to look at these some of these alternatives. And there's certain diseases that absolutely require they don't work in animals. And you, you, to be able to bring a, a therapeutic to market, you have to find an alternative way. And I think that's going to open up the doors. I mentioned to you early on that I'm flying out right after this interview. I'm going down to Washington to testify again with staffers to see if we can get more funding 
for government agencies or academics because it, this is going to take, as they say, a village to make this work. There needs to be technologies like organon chips, other technologies. There needs to be robust validation data that has to occur. And so you have to have a body of evidence so the regulators get more comfortable with that. So I say it's early days because I think the, the caution around bringing therapeutics to market from a regulatory perspective is real. And candidly, you know, the FDA is there to protect us as consumers of health, that they don't want to put something on the market that could cause harm. So there's this balance and we need the scientific evidence to make that happen. Right. And of course, the irony is that relying on on animal test experiment subjects is actually what's putting us at harm. But, (laughs) you know, let me ask you, so the FDA Modernization Act is, is about basically drugs, right? Like, you know, should drugs be tested on animals or must drugs be tested on animals? But there's a lot of animal testing that doesn't go on for drugs, especially in the food industry. You know, you see the rise of alternative proteins, the industry in which I spend my profession. And many of the companies in that space feel that in order to get the FDA to recognize their novel ingredient as grass or generally recognized as safe, that they need to do animal testing. And so a number of these products that are you know, designed to displace the use of animals in agriculture are being tested on animals in laboratories in order to get the FDA to recognize this. Now, FDA doesn't mandate animal testing to get a grass designation, but it certainly helps. And many companies have done it for that reason. So can organ on a chip by Emulate or others be used, be useful in that type of toxicity testing too, not just for drugs, but also for, let's say, novel food ingredients? I don't see why not. It, 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 if we have built an organ model, and, if, and just to be candid, we, we've actually built other species organ models. We published a paper back in 2019 where we created a rat liver chip. And the reason we did that was a drug went into clinical trials and unfortunately killed five patients. And it was a negative in the rat. And what we did was we went back and looked at that particular drug. We created a rat chip. And sure enough, it was negative in our rat chip. It was negative in rat in vivo, went into clinical trials and unfortunately caused fatalities. We then ran it on our human liver chip. And sure enough, it showed as a toxic signal. So Therefore, if our human chip was available back then, we could have prevented that drug potentially going into clinical trials and causing those fatalities. So to your point, we can modify the organ model to have whether species-specific or human-specific if that was if it was so desired. Well, that's pretty riveting. I hadn't considered this. Obviously, you can see the utility in making human organs on a chip. But if somebody really wants to know what's going on in rats, then you know they they can satisfy their curiosity with with that too. So you know, what, one times you're asked that <laughs> researchers have been living in this environment for so long, yeah. they just they, they they can't move beyond. We're, we're obsessed with curing rodent cancer. So. Uh, you know, that that's that satisfies one of my questions on this, which is novel food ingredients. And uh, I mean, it sounds like you probably don't know if that has happened yet, but it would be really interesting to know, like if somebody was submitting a grass notice to FDA and they relied on emulate generated data. And, and the same would be so for cosmetic testing on animals. You know, you have a number of states in the U.S. that have banned the sale of cosmetics that are tested on animals. In fact, entire countries have done so. It still goes on. And so I presume your answer is the same here, that your organs on a chip can be utilized in cosmetic testing as well. Absolutely. And uh, to your point, actually, Europe is even ahead of the U.S. in this front where they've banned testing on cosmetics on animals quite some time now. And yeah, there's a real application here. We actually have a, a very good partnership with a large 
cosmetic company working on a specific skin model that will allow them to do some unique things. And so, yes, the, the need for that segment is there. The push to stop doing that testing is there. And alternatives, I think, are going to play a big role in cosmetics. Interesting. Jim, I was reading a Fast Company story about you all at Emulate, and the story mentioned that switching to an organ-on-a-chip model could save pharmaceutical companies billions of dollars since animal testing is costly and often doesn't actually successfully bring new drugs to market for the reasons that we've already noted earlier in the show. So if animal welfare advocates obviously would want this, and it could save the pharmaceutical companies billions of dollars and get more drugs to market more quickly, who opposes this? Like who, who, what's the barrier? Like who opposed the FDA Modernization Act? Like who, who are the opponents of your technology that are making it a hurdle for you right now? Yeah, you know, the status quo is the, is the, is my biggest competitor right now. And because there is decades and decades of doing this the same way, there is a comfort level that, you know, animals are the next step in progression before going to human clinical trials. And there hasn't been large enough studies to, let's just say, to convince the naysayers that an alternative method is also an option. And here's the scientific proof to do so. Now, with that said, we just had a publication come out, and this is the one that was referred to in the Wired magazine in mid-December in Nature Communications Medicine. And this was a very large trial that we did with our liver chip. And we tested 27 compounds for drug-induced liver injury. And of those, 22 of those were deemed hepatotoxic by the FDA standings. Of those 22, we were able to detect 87% of those with our liver chip. All of them, all of them had gone through two animal species and went into clinical trials. They were missed. We got 87% of them. So this is the first study that's coming out now that's really starting to show the robust validation you can do with something like this. And these compounds, they weren't chosen by us. We follow what's called the IQ Consortium's guidelines on how to validate a microphysiological system, which this is. And candidly, we, we were more than pleased with the data that came out of this. And to give you some other perspective, of those 22 drugs hepatotoxic, 10 of those caused 242 patient fatalities, 242 patient fatalities. That was either in the clinic or post-market approval. And of those 10 drugs, all of them have been either pulled off the market, two of them remain on with a black box labeling. So we, we have, for the first time, a significant data set that's, candidly, for my, mark, my position, unquestionable that we have an alternative here, particularly in assessing drug-induced liver injury. Well, definitely please email me the link to that article. I'd love to include it in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But I, I guess I want to just also reframe the last question I asked you, Jim, because you said status quo is your biggest competitor, right? But you know, status quo doesn't show up to testify against a bill, right? So like, is there any lobby? Like, Is the animal breeders lobby coming after you on this? Like, like surely there is somebody who submits testimony to Congress and says, don't pass this bill. Like, is that so, or am I mistaken? There's just, there's an, an open goal. Yeah, no. So if it's done, it, it, it's done, I would suggest in an area and venues that I'm unaware of. Got, um, got it. Look, it, okay. it. There's clearly, there's clearly financial interests and animal breeders and that entire industry, right. as you know, the 
very significant industry. So you could assume if their financial interests are at stake, there's likely some activity there. But that would be my you know, only speculation on my behalf. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, animal experimentation is huge business, obviously. You know, there's whole companies that all they do is contract testing for various pharmaceutical companies. So surely I, I presume they're not a big fan of what you're doing, but we'll see. So what's next for you guys, Jim? So, you know, you, you have now passed this legislation. You're going down to DC to testify for funding, of course. But what's the next step for Emulate? Like, you know, what, do you, what does it take for you guys to get to the next level? Yeah, so we need to continue to evolve the technology. And, you know, it's in the hands now of the researchers. It's probably what I consider version 2.0 of the technology. We've got five basic organ models. We've got a supply of what we call our bio kits now. And now we're looking to optimize that technology, make it easier to use for the customer, have a higher throughput. And then we have to invest in, again, just like I described the, the Nature publication, we have to have larger studies that shows this evidence so we can, again, build the confidence in the research community that they can utilize these tools. And so it, it's not uncommon that when a new technology is, is coming out, there has to be robust studies to, to substantiate it. And we're in that study building stage. There's been a lot of publications. I mean, hundreds of publications on the technology, but you need to have it in a robust, a robust data set to really convince the marketplace. Got it. All right. Well, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to more of these studies coming out. I hope that you do succeed in obtaining the funding that you're seeking from the federal largesse as well. You're doing some pretty awesome things, Jim, but I know this isn't your first entrepreneurial rodeo that you have been involved in many companies in the pharma space in the past. And now you're working to help try to make the world a better place by getting more accurate drugs to the market more quickly without having to cause so much animal suffering in the process. Let me ask you, are there any resources, Jim, that have been useful for you that you would recommend to somebody who's listening and thinks, wow, I really like what this guy is doing. I wish I could maybe emulate, pun intended, some of the things that he's doing. So uh, what do you recommend? Any books or anything else that have been useful for you? Yeah, you know, look, at startups are not easy. And you're right, I've, I've done this before. I was in a, a cancer startup using AI before AI was popular. And so evangelizing new technology is, is always a lot of work. And you have to, you have to hang in there and you gotta, you, you, you just can't give up. You know, you, you talk about books and I, I you know, I, I don't want to, I guess, date myself, but you know, one of probably the most inspiring books I've read is always about true life adventure. And back in the early 1900s, Ernest Shackleton, who used to sail to the Antarctica, had some tremendous harrowing experiences. One particular experience called Endurance, which is a great book. He, uh, he and his men were trapped there for almost two years, and it's the whole survival story and how he as a leader had to steer his group. And I could tell you, doing many startups, that it does not always go as planned. And uh, how you lead your teams through those times is probably the most rewarding and, 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 and interesting. So that's one I would suggest it would be learn those leadership stories from someone like that. Then it was true life or death situation. Got it. Well, we'll certainly link to endurance in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. And for listeners who are only hearing the audio of this, I can assure you. So Jim said he was wanting to date himself, but he wants to talk about a story that happened in the early 1900s. This dude does not look like he was around from the early 1900s. He looks like he may have read a book about that, but you know, he, he actually looks like in the upper upper percentiles of fitness for men his age. So I I, I I think, you know, don't don't think early 1900s for him. Cool. So 
That's one book that you'd recommend. I haven't read it, but I certainly have heard of Endurance and I, I actually would like to read it. So you saying it maybe maybe will push me over the edge there. But being that you are somebody who has done a number of companies and are very familiar with life in startup land, are there any companies you wish somebody else would start? You know, I presume you're going to be doing Emulate for some time now, so you, but you might have other de- ideas about companies that could do some good in the world that you hope that somebody listening might start. So you got any recommendations for listeners, Jim? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We're we're kind of on the front end of drug development and really trying to, again, eliminate unnecessary animal testing, create these alternative technologies, and then only move the best candidate drugs into clinical trials. But I could tell you what I, I see, which, you know, as these technologies evolve, the whole area of clinical trials and how we actually approve drugs and how we test drugs needs to be completely reimagined. It is incredibly expensive to the healthcare community. It takes way too long. And as our technologies start to evolve and we start to put new candidates, that whole area has to be reimagined because the length of time, it's a billion plus to go through clinical trials now. It's just, it's, it, it, it's really, really, really ripe for disruption. Now you'd have to have the understanding and patience of working with regulators and, and the community, but it is, is, it is the next part in the equation that I see will, will be some, some bright company will tackle that at some point in time. Let's hope so. Maybe there will be a future time, Jim, where somebody on this, well, somebody will be the guest on this show who heard you make that recommendation and they'll be working with you at that point. So we'll see. But in the meantime, good luck in DC, Jim. Good luck getting more and more pharmaceutical companies to be using organ on a chip rather than animals. And uh, we'll continue watching Emulate and cheering on for your continued success. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.